0: someone that wants to learn they have to want to learn because it's a lot of work to work for us and to work in our restaurants anyone will tell you i think they'll tell you it's a good experience but i think they'll tell you it's a lot of work you know they can work in some of the best restaurants in the country with that skill you know, or the world really. This
1: is absolutely true. This is a business where you need no formal education. You can travel the world and you can rise to the top. You can own your own restaurant someday without a formal education. And it's all really about how you apply yourself, what you learn along the way and how much you put into it, obviously is what you get out of it. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. This week, I'm speaking with a true operator's operator running a restaurant in arguably one of the most competitive foodie towns in America. That would be Portland, Maine, second only to San Francisco, California. What really struck me was her early experience and learnings came at Thomas Keller's The French Laundry in California. Now that restaurant needs no introduction. She and her husband, chef, partner have you know turned this learnings and their experience into their own French bistro. In addition to reimagining a restaurant they had many, many years ago in another location just north of Portland, and that restaurant is gaining five-star rave reviews. So many key learnings, nuggets of information here, all about running great restaurants. So please, you're not going to want to miss it. Thanks to the sponsors of this week's episode, Works, Pop Menu, Smithfield Culinary, and the Restaurant Rockstars Academy. If you haven't heard of the Academy, it's really what I call an exit strategy for your business. You can now assign your front and back of house teams to literally learn to run your business. The back of house can learn an inventory system, costing out your menu, your food, beverage and labor costs, daily break even and maximizing your profit. While the front of house can use our sales stars training to learn to Provide great dining experiences while doubling your sales. The Academy is now available at a really reasonable monthly price. It's available at restaurantrockstars.com. Check it out, please. Can't wait to see in this episode, so please stay tuned.
0: You're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin.
1: At Smithfield, they know that to meat lovers, a great serving of their favorite cut is so much more than just food. It's an experience, one that keeps them coming back to your operation again and again. They're committed to offering you the perfect protein for every dish at each day part. Turn to Smithfield for the most comprehensive portfolio of pork products, such as bacon, ham, sausage, and more, plus a variety of fully cooked beef and chicken. With Smithfield products, you can create delicious meals from traditional menu items to globally inspired dishes, all designed to satisfy the insatiable appetites of your hungry carnivorous patrons. What's more, Smithfield does it responsibly, with full transparency and traceability from their farms to your kitchen. You can always be confident that when you partner with Smithfield, you'll serve what you love and your customers will love what you serve. Find your perfect protein with Smithfield. For more information or to order products, visit smithfieldculinary.com smithfield. Rockstars, restaurants have been hit hard the last few years, which means restaurant owners and staff are working harder than ever. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be really demanding, which is why I recommend Pot Menu Answering. PopMenu answering turns every phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Within the PopMenu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guests hear, and even send follow-up links via text message. Pop Menu Answering picks up your phone 24 7, 365 days a year, allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most pleasing your guests. Prevent lost customers and impress your guests with Pop Menu Answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month, plus, lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com forward slash rockstars go now to get a hundred dollars off your first month and learn more about pop menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com forward slash rockstars rock on hey everyone welcome back to the restaurant rockstars podcast michelle how are you doing today
0: good roger how are you
1: So excited to have you on the show. So you and I know each other. We both are serving on the board of directors for our state restaurant and lodging association, Hospitality Maine. That's how we first met. But I'm really inspired with the restaurants that you're running right now. And they're very inspired properties. And we both share a passion for guest service and all things pride and passion of the restaurant business. So that's why I had you on today. And I know you've got a lot to share to the audience. So thanks for being here.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. So we normally start. My audience always knows that I start with the hospitality backstory of my guest, and everyone has a different story. What's yours?
0: Um, well, you know, I don't know. One, I decided. Uh, both my parents are physicians, so totally outside of you know everyone's comfort zone. Um, But I did know going into college, that's what I wanted to do. I went to BU for hospitality management. So I had my BS in hospitality management at BU. So I sort of knew right away, but there's really, there's no family, there's no prior experience. So I I really can't tell you how or why I knew that. I just uh, decided when I was 18 that that's what I want to do. And I sort of never looked back.
1: So let's go back to BU. So if you're in a hospitality program, um, what was some of the core curriculum or courses that in you know that you really got immersed in, and what did you learn from them, and did you apply any of those those to your businesses today?
0: Yeah, it was a terrific program. Um, it was a very small program in a very large school, so I had some of the professors over and over and over. You know, the first two years were. You know, it's a BS. Which uh, science and math wasn't my strong suit, but there was a lot of um, a psychology. There was a lot of there was a lot of math. There was accounting. Uh, then uh, then there was a lot of philosophical and a lot of case studies, uh, mm-hmm. which was really really helpful. Um, uh, yeah, and I loved it. It was real great, real world experience. There was some cooking classes as well. So it was a little bit of everything. A little bit of wine. Um, So I think it was just such a well-rounded, fascinating program.
1: Did that program specialize between restaurants and lodging operations at all? Or or did you sort of take courses in both? Because at that point, some people don't know which area they might end up in.
0: You took courses in both. And there was an externship um, semester, which I actually did in a hotel, the Boston Harbor Hotel. No kidding, I know uh, that property. Yeah, it's a great property. And it was an amazing experience. I went through every single department. Uh, and worked a summer in every single department in that hotel. So originally I kind of geared towards hotels and then then switched <laughs> suddenly.
1: So we all have our own definition of what that word hospitality means. Can you share what it means to you?
0: Yeah, I think um, what I try to tell my staff now too is um, that word to me means a lot of empathy. I think that's extremely important um, whether you're talking about your coworkers or your customers um, to understand where they're coming from. And that's the only way to, you know, give them a great experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's, you know, personal. I think it means um, just making people feel welcome and comfortable, you know, and and not differentiate it as a job, but like, how would you do that if you were at home entertaining or, you know, if you were with your family, if your mom was coming to dinner, just a, a welcoming feeling. But I think that really starts with empathy. All
1: right. That's beautiful for, for sure. So let's now talk about anything that you like to do. If you have any spare time outside of your restaurant vocation, do you have any other passions or things that you like to do?
0: I mean, I am learning to do a lot of things. I'm learning to try to have free time. I think this is the first time in, you know, 20 years that I've actually started to step back a little bit. So this is sort of all new. I've, I've have all these new hobbies. I'm, teaching myself how to knit and I'm teaching myself how to surf. Um, so, and then I'm a big skier. I have right. 13, a 13 year old and a 15 year old. They're both boys. So my husband and I are trying to spend a lot, much time with them as possible before they go off to school. So we're sort of focused on traveling with them and and showing them a good time and, and spending a lot of family time.
1: Boy, the skiing is fantastic right now. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. Now was the time to be out there. So if you can find the time, good for you. That's great. Fantastic. Well, you have two. Well, you've got one really beautiful French-inspired restaurant, Petite Jacqueline. And I want to hear, you know, what, what was originally inspiring that it has something to do with your grandmother, I believe. So I want to get into that. And then I want you to describe the restaurant for our audience and tell us, you know, if you were to walk through the door for the very first time, not as an owner, but as a guest, what are the impressions? What strikes you? What's the ambiance like, the menu, the cuisine? Just take us through the whole concept, but start really with your inspiration and and your grandmother's story.
0: Sure. So Jacqueline is my grandmother, um, and she is, in fact, petite. She never got taller than 4'8". So,
1: oh, wow. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, perfect homage to her. But uh, even though her stature was small, she just filled up the room. She had a huge personality. She is French. My father was French. He moved here in his 20s. Um, So I grew up in a French household. I grew up going to France every summer, um, spending a chunk of time with my grandparents. um, And they would come over here for a chunk of time. So we were quite close. And then when I married my husband my grandmother and him would cook together and um she was just all about cooking and and, you know you said hospitality actually when I think of hospitality she comes to mind immediately she just embodied everything that was hospitality just wanting people to have fun um conversation you know um getting to know people making sure they were happy that that's what she lived for so we wanted to recreate that in a very traditional French restaurant, um, but also embody that feeling of hospitality and, and convival atmosphere. It's, you know, you walk in and there's a little bit of a din. It's people enjoying themselves, drinking maybe a little too much wine. Um, we really wanted a bistro feel. So it's it's not fine dining. It's the idea when you're in France that you go to a bistro for breakfast, for lunch, for snack, for coffee, for dinner, for late night drinks. So it's just open all the time. It's a comfortable place. Um, And I think when you go in, and I hope it's what I feel, what I've heard and what we tried to capture is you're like walking into Paris. You're walking, you're in a different place. The minute you walk through that door, you're no longer in Portland, Maine, you're, you are in Paris. And it, I think it feels that way. Hopefully it feels that way. I've heard it feels that way, um, but that's the concept um, from the the way it sounds, from the way it looks. We have pictures of my grandmother and of our our old pictures, black and white, of our family on the walls and maps of France. Um, There's some really cool lighting chandeliers. We keep the lighting dim at night. That's super important to me. Some French music and my staff, you know, I love my staff there. They just um they've most of them have been with me for a really long time, and they're just they care so much about the customer and the restaurant. they're they are really invested, and I think you feel that right away.
1: Do they all wear black and white traditional French, you know uniforms? Uh, Call them what you will. <laughs>
0: we started that way um yeah. and white glove it,
1: service all that sort of thing
0: we started with the the vests we did start when we first opened mm-hmm. with the vest and the the black vest and the white shirt and then i think it felt formal for Maine. um sure. so we're now yeah we're now in all black but they do have um striped aprons long aprons so i i feel like we're still holding sure. on a little bit that feel but a little more casual
1: Wow. So your grandmother obviously would be incredibly proud if she had the opportunity to dine in this restaurant. Was she alive when you started it at all?
0: She was. She came um, yeah. Came to the restaurant when it first opened Beautiful. and we had a party for her and we toasted her and she did a little speech. Yep. Yeah, so she has, oh, you know, she's wow. no longer- She's no longer with us but she did get to see it so.
1: Oh, how honored she must have been. I mean, her namesake restaurant and the whole story yeah. behind it and just the history that goes with that. That's beautiful. I mean, that that really that really cuts to the core of what the business is all about, you know, having an inspiration and having a concept in mind and then creating it so that the guests can enjoy it and understand it and just be part of it, and and it sounds like from what you described, you're trans. You know, you're transporting people to a whole different place when they when they walk in the door. You know, people go out to dinner for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's a special occasion. Sometimes they just didn't feel like cooking. But a wonderful restaurant really transports you and makes you forget about what happened the minute before you walk through the door. And now right. suddenly you're in this whole different atmosphere. And you're really recreating that, that spirit and that feeling of France. So that's awesome. You know, not everyone listening to this podcast knows what a foodie city, Portland, Maine really is. And so many people compare it per capita to like a San Francisco, because not only can you find any cuisine or any concept, but there's so many James Beard award-winning restaurants and there's so many, just, it's such a foodie scene. So when you first established um, the restaurant, can you recall, well, well, first of all, what year was that? Would you say?
0: Um, so we opened Five Fifty Five in two thousand three, mm-hmm. and we opened Tate Jacqueline in two thousand eleven.
1: Okay, so it's been quite some time. So, being in such a competitive marketplace, how did you gain a foothold? How did you gain, you know, gain your first guest counts and all that sort of thing? How did you build a loyal following? Tell us about some of those things. There's so many key learnings there.
0: Yeah, so it was a big learning curve. We moved here in 2000 and opened Five Fifty Five in 2003, um, and there wasn't really a whole lot around. Um, one of our inspirations, we had been a bunch to Fourth Street, you know, and that was one of the oh, yes. original, and we loved it, and um, mm-hmm. that sort of gave us the confidence that if that restaurant could survive, you know, without a sign, <laughs> we, we could uh, we could certainly bring some uh, higher um, elevated food to Portland. We were coming here from California. Um, so we, uh, but we, we were in Congress Street. So at that time, 2003 was, Congress Street was a little sketchy to say the least. I
1: so remember I, those I know days. Of, yeah.
0: Yes, I think a lot of people thought we were a little bit crazy, but we got a really good price on the, the building and we didn't have a lot of money. So we thought we're going to go for it. Um, but what surprised us is, how quickly people really uh, supported us, uh, even though no one knew who we were. and um, but uh, it it really we started off simply trying to, you know, we wanted the customer to dictate ultimately what we were serving, how daring could we be, you know, um, so we started quietly and simply, and then we would experiment with some a little fancier meals are a little, you know, out of the normal realm of dishes. And if that went well, we would continue. And so that's how we plotted through and, and the customers told us what worked and didn't work. And um, we were super, um, I would say, focused on the customer, um, on repeat customers, on loyal customers. We'd learn what they liked, where they like to sit. Um, and so we just started, uh, getting a following and people would come back every week or, you know, once a month. And we saw people, I think of it now, cause it was like 18 years ago. We saw people come in with babies and their kids are now in college. It was oh, wow. crazy. Oh, yes. and they would come in once a week. So you'd see them. Yeah. And, um, so we really focused. So even though Portland obviously is a tourist scene and we love the tourists as well, but we are, thought process was to focus on the locals because that would sustain you through the winter. And that was, you know, ultimately what I think we became known for.
1: Yeah. And obviously you became the front of house personality, kind of the maitre d', you know, and, and you definitely have a presence yes. in the restaurant. Would you say no, your husband, Steve is the chef at, at the restaurants and, um, One, he's probably very creative. I guess he's experimental, right? He was willing to listen to feedback from guests and obviously changing a menu just fuels his fire and his passion for what he's doing too. So does he ever come out and greet the guests and talk to them? Does anyone say, Hey, can we say a word with the chef? We'd really like to compliment him on the meal. That sort of thing. Does that happen?
0: Yeah, he does. He's actually, he'll say that he um, is kind of shy, but he's not, he's Irish. So he's a he has a gift for the gab. <laughs> so the only mm-hmm. reason he won't come out is because he gets stuck talking for too long. I see. And then, of course. you know, the, the fires happen in the kitchen. But he does love to come out. He he loves talking to the customers. And again, he's just there far too long. He's the problem. <laughs> Where's my problem? I think it's a problem. It's hard to get him back into the kitchen.
1: What would you say? You know, we all visit restaurants from time to time when we're traveling or even locally or whatnot. But you know, it's clear when a restaurant is firing on all cylinders, you can tell that the operation is dialed. And then you can also tell those restaurants, that are just sort of, you walk in the door and it's just chaos. And I'm not talking about the labor crisis now, which clearly is affecting everyone. And we haven't been able to deliver the same level of service that guests have come to expect since the pandemic, but let's take ourselves before the pandemic. What do you believe in your heart of hearts and mind is sort of the magic formula of a great restaurant?
0: Wow, that's a, that's a doozy of a question, Roger. Um, well, I think, you know, it's a fine line, right? You don't want, want everything to be slow and quiet and dull. Uh, you want this feeling that things are a little bit hard. People loved watching, you know, um, 5 to 5 was a big open concept, and people loved watching people moving fast and knowing that it was busy and full and, and like you said, operating at full cylinders. But there's a fine line between it being a, a – Cool, busy atmosphere to it being complete chaos and everything's on fire, right? Um, um, I think that's a really hard question. You know, a lot of it is chemistry between your staff for sure. Uh, Mm -hmm. For us, because my husband worked in the back and I worked in the front, um, we created an atmosphere that the front and the back worked together, we didn't tolerate any uh unkindness or blame game or yelling. We didn't, you know, my husband is very calm. He isn't the screaming chef. He's, uh, I've calm, had a couple cool. of
1: those by the way. <laughs>
0: so by, so by, so it was, that's nice, you know, cause yeah. you can't have your staff be nervous to talk to you and tell you when of there's a problem, right. then it doesn't work. So I think we did the philosophy of everything's fixable you know, this is an emergency. We're not, we're not, this is an emergency room. It's just dinner. We can, it's important, but it's not, you know, life threatening most of the time. So, uh, I think there was a feeling of calmness back in the back of the house and a feeling of unity between the back and the front, which was, you know, we're a team and if something goes down, we'll fix it together. Um, I think it's a really hard business that the owner, Isn't there, you know, most businesses you can operate without the owner having a presence. And I think that's a big mistake Mm -hmm. in this business. I think it's and you know, we're trying to do it more and more because we're getting old. (laughs) But it's hard to be there, you know, weekends and nights all the time. But I think that is probably the magic that and at least if you're not there every night, your presence is still there it's not one of those things you can sort of set it and forget it and check in i i just don't think it really works i mean maybe if you have a if you do do that you have to have a manager that is in it a thousand percent and not just in it for the paycheck but in it as much as you and then you have to be guiding them through that and you know your philosophies and so forth
1: absolutely true and excellent advice So let's talk a little bit about, well, a lot of the audience have owned restaurants. They still own restaurants, maybe a single independent location, multiple locations. Some people are into franchising, but regardless of all of that, you know, we've all had successes, we've had failures, we've had experiments and all those things. Now you mentioned 555. There was the original 555 that you said opened in 2003, but now you've got a new 555 North. We're going to get into that in a few minutes, but can you tell us a little bit about what happened at the original 555 and why you chose to close?
0: Sure. So it was 18 years. um, And I think, you know, it segues from what I said, you know, when we opened it, we were there we lived there the first two years in an apartment above the restaurant. So we were literally there 24, seven. And then we had kids (laughs) uh, and, and for a while that still worked, you know, but then things started to get, you know, the kids go to school and you're, you're not seeing them for 24 hours because you're sleeping in and the other one's putting them on the bus at seven in the morning and you're not getting home. The nanny puts them to bed and you're just not, it's, you know, this isn't the way it should be. Right. So you're trying to figure a solution. Our solution uh, at the time was that Steve would take a step back. So um, he hired a chef and then it just, um, as the kids were getting older, it was getting tougher. And uh, we decided if if we couldn't be there 24 seven, like I said to you, I I don't think it, it works as well. Um, And we weren't putting out a product that we felt was the product that we, we had envisioned and um we couldn't be there to greet those regulars that had been with us for 18 years and um you know we had some great staff but it was just time to you know look in another direction a little bit and um spend some time with our family and um you know maybe look at new ventures because i think when you're running a place like that and it's a unique place because it was fine dining and it, it was a pretty big restaurant 80 seats so it just was all encompassing. There were tasting menus and there was a separate bar and a bar menu. And it was just, uh, it just needed a lot of attention. And sure. um, since we couldn't give it the full attention, we thought it was best to take a break.
1: You know, one of the biggest challenges, and I know personally from experience that it's it's definitely one of the most difficult businesses, but then you combine working with a spouse, which can be really, really <laughs> challenging too. Can you talk, can you speak to that? What it's like working together with Steve?
0: you know, we've gotten asked that a a lot. And a lot of people come up to us and say, I could never work with my spouse. Um, But I really would say that I would, I would find it difficult not to work with my spouse, but of course that's sort of all I know. But um, I think people don't realize that we didn't, you know, he was the kitchen. I was Mm -hmm. front of the house. I worked in an office in the day and then out on the floor and he was in the kitchen the whole time. So we didn't see, it's not like we were next to each other all day. We were in separate departments, so to speak. So, sure. um, that made it a little easier and we've always had the same vision. We were lucky that there's very few things that we didn't agree on. So that helps.
1: <laughs> um, sure. and like
0: I said, my husband's very calm and super patient. And I think the ultimate philosophy is much like raising kids. Even if you don't agree at the time, you, uh, present a united front for the time being, and then Absolutely. you just maybe discuss it later and come up with a decision. But in the heat of the moment, you back each other up no matter what. And I, I think that was key and respect each other so that people can see you respecting one another is, is huge too.
1: Now, is it hard not to bring the restaurants and restaurant conversation home when you have free time?
0: Oh yeah. That's all we talk about. And it's funny because our kids laugh um, because we'll <laughs> it will get super, when we agree together, whether we're frustrated with the situation or a customer or what have you will get heated in our agreement and our kids will laugh and say, it almost sounds like you're arguing, but you're actually agreeing. You're so funny. Yeah. And my, my son, my oldest son says, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm not going in the business. It's too stressful. (laughs) You know, that
1: was my next question. Do they have any involvement at all in the restaurants?
0: They do. So my oldest at 13 with when the pandemic hit and we were short staffed, he started working at Petite Jacqueline. He was a back server and dishwasher and he works there. Yeah. So he's worked there for the past two years and then he works down the street uh, at another restaurant um, washing dishes and back serving. And my 13, my 13 year old now just started working. So he'll start dishwashing this summer at Petite Jacqueline. Yep.
1: Restaurant owners and managers, listen, it's not too late to claim your employer retention credit, but you have to act soon. If you haven't heard of this, your business can receive money back from the IRS, money you've already paid in payroll taxes. Nothing you do today is more important. Now, this is free and clear cash that your business is owed by the government. The ERC program is available if your operation had 500 employees or less. You had to shut down or partially suspend your business or you had at least a 20% decrease in business due to COVID-19 during any quarter of 2020 and the first three quarters of 2021. Now, your business can get up to $7,000 per employee per quarter for 21 and up to $5,000 per employee in 2020. Now, if you have just 10 employees today and meet the requirements, you can receive up to $260,000 back in a refundable tax credit that you don't have to pay back. Now, the faster you apply, the quicker you get the money, but you must do it soon. You can use the money for any purpose, payroll, cost of goods, business improvement, or other expenses expenses. expenses. Again, you don't have to pay this money back. Now, Works is a company that will do everything for you to get the money that you're owed. Now, I'm speaking from experience with Works. My restaurant received big checks in all available quarters, and Works people and process made it easy. For a no-obligation consultation, click the link in the show notes to this episode and speak to them with no obligation. You pay nothing until they get you the cash. Act now. So interestingly, well, I, my very first job in the restaurant business was a dishwasher as a teenager too, but it's a little too early to tell, but you're creating a lasting legacy here with your businesses. And there may be a chance that they could take over someday, right? Who's to say?
0: Right. I mean, it doesn't necessarily matter to us. My, my youngest, he used to say he wouldn't but he's started cooking lately and he seems to love it so lately he's been like maybe so we'll see
1: let's get into the menu now obviously creativity is a big part how often do you change the menu at petite
0: um we change it uh, big changes seasonally so big changes four times a year um but we 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 change it quite a bit, depending on things that are working or or not working, Um, we give the chef that's there now a ton of leeway to sort of do what what they think they want to do, which Mm -hmm. is totally fine with us as long as it works. You know, we like empowering them to do their thing. They think it's important. It's really important, I find, for the cooks that the menu changes a bit so that they have some creative input and some challenges. Cause if you're just cooking the same thing day after day, it it gets boring for them. Yeah. Of
1: course. So would you say that you encourage them to come up with new ideas at all your cooks?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mostly we we sort of look at it as a veto process more than they come up with the ideas. And if we don't think it, it fits, we'll, we'll discuss it or tweak it, you know?
1: Yeah. Okay. Perfect. That's great. Now, do you collaborate on the menu as well? Do you come up with wine pairings for the food? You strike me as uh, somewhat of a wine expert, are you?
0: Yes. Yes. So I I do the wine pairings. My manager, Jake, uh, at Petite Jacqueline, does a really great job. So we will collaborate. And then I do just about everything at 555 North. um, Mm -hmm. And the wine pairings, we do a lot of wine pairings. You know, we're trying to teach the servers to be able to do their own wine pairings, you know, so there's a lot of teaching involved. Um, And then, um, and I do, I do collaborate on almost everything, you know, after you've been doing this for 20 years, you sort of have an insight of what the customers will like and what they won't like, what will be maybe too elevated or what will be too boring or what you know that the cook's it'll be too difficult. In the night you're doing 200 covers, you know, they, they always want to do these fun things, but you're like, well, that's fine when you're doing 20 covers, but we're doing 200. Right. It's not going to work. So there's a lot of collaboration and, which I just think is teaching, teaching these young chefs, you know, there's more to being a chef than cooking.
1: Is there anything that you can recall that you thought was a really great idea? Maybe you it was an experiment that just didn't work out.
0: Ooh, that's a good question. I'm sure there's tons of stuff. <laughs> of course,
1: sure you know, you've been in the business not, so long. It's like not everything is a grand slam home run. And we try no. this under the best of intentions, but it doesn't always go great.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of them are desserts. You know, I think mm-hmm. a lot of desserts, it's a struggle. What people's personal tastes are super interesting. And um, that's often, again, a, a problem when you're, you know, I think... The answer to that would be what what we said earlier is that, um, you know, the best laid plans, again, things work great when you're doing a tasting menu for 10 people, but then when you try to extrapolate it for on a Saturday night with 200 covers fails miserably. Doesn't Hard to the do ground. the
1: souffles, right? That take time when you've got the well, full actually restaurant. we're doing
0: we're doing souffles now no and one. they're working out really good. You just need uh you need a little uh, they have to pre-order, but okay, yeah, but course. that's one that we didn't think would work that actually Oh, is, okay. is working so that's kind of fun yeah all right so
1: that's not a failed experiment at all no, that's that, a win. That, that
0: was the opposite that's kind of a, awesome. a cool one that is gonna i think yeah. gonna work we're just experimenting with it now so i mean the problem is you don't have a ton of time to experiment we've you know like you said we're all mom and pop operators and we don't have an extra kitchen and an extra set of hands i can prep things and try 10 different varieties and we can sit there and taste test it and uh you know you're, you're sort of Running everything on the fly and and you know waiting to see if it works or not you know so absolutely yeah
1: thanks for that answer let's let's quickly shift back to the most challenging time in this business and everyone went through it what was the pandemic like for you
0: yeah the pandemic well, yeah it, you know it is what it is um, I think for us I think you know I think about this a lot in the whole. My peers from the industry and all the, you know, owners, I just, when I think back that time, I'm just so proud of everyone, of all of us. It sounds probably corny, but I just think more than anything, it shows you what a strong, intelligent people, Uh, super impressive. Uh, And I think at the end of the day, that's what everyone did, uh, including the city and including the state. I mean, everyone just worked together to, no one quit. No one said, I can't do it anymore. You know, it was, okay, let's do to go alcohol let's switch to to go dining you know central provisions did sandwiches and yeah we changed yeah. our menu and then we were able to have a huge outdoor seating because the city allowed it and that was that saved us so you know it, you know that's
1: yeah. right it, that's so i don't right.
0: look on it as a it's a dark time necessarily i look on it as we were able to pay all our employees i worked together with a Several different restaurant owners, we were texting and emailing every day saying, what are you doing? Do you, have you heard from the unemployment? You know, it was just, I actually look on it as a time where um, I'm, I'm pretty proud of everybody and, and how we p- pivoted and, you know, kept our staff paid and informed and and then moved on.
1: Well, we don't so- need to dive any deeper into that, but thank you for sharing your experiences. Everyone had to pivot numerous times and it was obviously the biggest challenge. I can't imagine anything going through that again. Now that it's over, do you feel stronger (laughs) now for the experience as a business and a person?
0: I think so. I, I have a better understanding of how precarious everything is. I mean, I, I feel fortunate because we're sort of towards the end of our career and it wasn't as, um, scary for us because if if let's say we couldn't open, you know, we we're sort of prepared for that now. We're we're almost <laughs> almost there anyway. Um, I think it was extremely hard for younger, younger generations of new restaurant owners. And um gosh, that is so hard if you're just starting out your life and your career. So um yeah I mean I, I feel really great. Our staff worked really well and I've kept a lot of them. And uh, I mean, like you said, as much as we don't wanna talk about it, I think right now it's almost harder than the pandemic to be completely honest with you. <laughs> what we're going through now is probably more challenging or at least as challenging
1: Let's touch on that. That really was my next question. What are you finding are to be the biggest challenges and pain points now? Obviously, labor and rising food costs and all those crazy things. We can we can certainly get into that, but what's keeping you up at night or what's really the biggest? I can't get I can't seem to get this out of my head because it's really a big challenge.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think nobody wants to hear it so redundant and repetitive, but I yeah. mean labor is I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years in this town, and labor has always been tricky you know it's Maine and there's not a lot of humans here period so staffing and skilled staffing has always been a challenge but now more than ever it's just um it's crippling it's it's crippling I you know we Mm -hmm. we cannot retain people no matter what you pay them and um some of the politics has been you, you just feel like you know you're getting the squeeze from every end and being a mom and pop, I think there's a lack of understanding from people that what it means to own a restaurant—the the thin profit margins and and just the the mom and pop. You know, we're we're not a state of uh, commercially owned huge conglomerate franchise restaurants. We're just couples trying to you know run a restaurant and make a living, and not a huge living, just enough to. You know, put our kids in college, and you know, uh, not work till we're ninety type of living. So, yes, yes. Um, so everything you shave is just—it's just navigating one thing after another. Whether it's—and I don't want to get political, but you know, whether minimum wage keeps rising, and you know, you're you're you know, paid sickly. You know, all these things you just take more money off the top, and you're just trying to figure out a way to do it without charging money that your customers just cannot or will not pay you know yeah
1: the value proposition is lost at some point you can't continue to raise prices where people no longer see the value in it and that's probably one of the biggest challenges because obviously we talked about rising food costs there are certain things beyond your control you can you know work with your suppliers as best you can you can shop things around but at the end of the day, we're still seeing much higher prices than what we were used to paying. And some things are like really out of control that have skyrocketed. So, you know, you have to shift your menu. You have to drop items. You have to explain communication to the guest is, is critically important. They need to understand that these are the times and everyone's experiencing inflation in their own way. But when they go out to dinner, they don't necessarily think about that. They just want to have a a wonderful experience, but they still want to feel like they're getting value for what they're paying for. That's that's hard.
0: Yeah. And as you raise prices, the expectation is Mm -hmm. just higher, which I get, I totally agree, but there's only so much food you can put on the plate for that price. And, and, and then you're short staffed. So (laughs) your service isn't quite where it should be. Um, And so they're feeling, yeah, they're feeling they they didn't get the value for that raised price, which is totally fair, but it's, you know, yeah, at some point the graph has to meet, right? The two points have to meet. So
1: you've got a core staff that have been with you for quite some time and the people that you really rely on. And then obviously you you try to hire whenever you can. What would you say um, your training is like? say, on a daily or weekly basis? Because training is, and and the guest service experience is so important in, in your restaurants. Can you just sort of t- take us through, say, onboarding and training and, and what types of things that you're training them on and hospitality and proper etiquette at the tables and just interaction with guests? I mean, all these things are important, but what, what do you do and how do you do it?
0: Yeah. I mean, training has always been so important for us because we understand since we came here in 2003, we were introducing a type of service that was never, really never seen here before coming from the French laundry. I didn't want to do the French laundry in Maine per se, but what I wanted to do was a little more casual atmosphere, but I wanted to have that service um, because it's so special. And I wanted the customer to feel special and to feel like they were being spoiled and, and being shown something that they've never seen before. So you're taking people that have great attitudes that's how we believe you know someone that wants to learn they have to want to learn because it's a lot of work to work for us and to work in our restaurants anyone will tell you I think they'll tell you it's a good experience but I think they'll tell you it's a lot of work it's a Mm -hmm. lot of training it's a lot of studying it's and when you're done that you'll be rewarded because you'll be able to get a job anywhere you know and and know what you're doing and and a level of service that is uh top top tiered. But again, with that comes a lot of work. So you really have to want to do the work. Um, so we t- love to take people that are interested in doing the work, that are excited about doing the work, um, that have a great ab- attitude, that sort of have hospitality in their, even if they don't know it yet, they have hospitality in their, in their blood and then teach them. So we consider our restaurants sort of teaching restaurants. Um, Beautiful. You know, we want people to learn the right way, and um, so you know, experience isn't always important to us. It's it's more about it's almost easier, so you can teach them the right way because unteaching the wrong way <laughs> is tricky. Um, but you know, you have people coming from you know the pizza joint and, and moving into fine dining, which is fine. It's doable. It just it takes some training. So our training is pretty intense. Um, You know, because there's wine training and the menu changes and they need to learn about the food. We have menu meetings with the chef. Um, We have long meetings right before service so we can answer questions and talk about wine. You know, we, we do wine tastings um, you know, I try I to
1: come over a glass of Bordeaux right now. <laughs>
0: right, right. We do. I mean, but you have to go back to the square one and show them exactly how to open a bottle of wine exactly sure. right. Cause there's Let's 10 support. different things that they can do wrong that you see every day wrong. So, you know, it's sort of, and it's a lot of repetition and a lot of patience because, um, all I care is that people are trying and they care and, and they, they will get there. And when they do, they're pretty excited about it when once they learn how to do it and realize that they can get, you know, they can work in some of the best restaurants in the country with that skill you know, or the world, really. This
1: is absolutely true. This is a business where you need no formal education. You can travel the world and you can rise to the top. You can own your own restaurant someday without a formal education. And it's all really about how you apply yourself, what you learn along the way, and how much you put into it, obviously, is what you get out of it. Now, you mentioned earlier in this, um, California, and then you just mentioned the French laundry. So I'm now putting the two together. Did you and your husband both work at the French laundry?
0: I worked at the French Laundry and my husband worked at Domaine Chandon when it was a restaurant. Um, Yeah. Yes. Yeah. After he finished culinary school, we moved out there. Yeah.
1: Now, what that is an incredible, um, you know, just an influence alone. I mean, the French Laundry is internationally acclaimed. Now, was that a Thomas Keller property?
0: It was. Yeah.
1: Okay. And did you work for Thomas?
0: I did. Wow. I worked for That's Thomas Taylor when he was still there every every single day, right before uh yeah. right when they were beginning to the talks of opening per se.
1: No kidding. Yeah. So I can't imagine what you learned there and how you now yeah. have applied that and continue to apply that. And it's and it's a story that you probably inspire your staff about. I mean, that is really an illustrious something to aspire to. And now you're recreating a lot of that with your restaurants and Obviously, you've got your own influences and your own spin to your restaurants, but it's like you came from a really amazing property that has, like I said, international acclaim. And I think just about everyone that's listening to this podcast is is familiar with, uh, with the name Thomas Keller and the French Laundry. It's just made such a splash. So I'm really glad you shared that. Thank you so much. Not to take anything away from what you're well, No, no, it, it is. Doing. That,
0: was, that was the idea, to go to the best restaurant arguably in the world and learn from it. And then, uh, you know, see what you could, could do from that. You know, once you learn from the best, you can, you don't have to do the same service, but you know, the right way is key to know the right way, how to do everything. And I learned so much there and I learned the, the biggest thing was hospitality I'd say because okay. even Thomas Keller oh, yeah. and he was not easy to work with by any stretch of the imagination. I've heard that.
1: I think yes. I've heard that along the way. Yes. yes. Uh, Demanding yeah. high standards. Yeah.
0: Yep. I got a real thick skin after that, but, um, but, but, uh, you know, as difficult as he was, I mean, difficult's wrong, I guess, as a perfectionist, as yes. we all are. Yeah. Um, he really, what impressed me the most was his hospitality, his, his, how important the clients, the guests, the customers were to him. He, it just, everything was about making them happy. And he never rested on his laurels for that. And, you know, the, the kid, the culinary school kid that saved all his money to come in to eat, was as important to him as the celebrity that came in and he, even more he would vip them he would uh, he would do that was really important to him um and each customer was really important to him and he was also a, a businessman he he understood the importance of filling seats and making money and that this was a, a you know that it had to make money and so it it was imp- it was really a, it was a fantastic experience wow.
1: yeah. thank you so much for sharing that i'm inspired just listening to it <laughs> Let's shift gears a little bit, Michelle. Let's talk about 555 North. So you've sure. reestablished the name and now it's what, 20, 25 miles north of Portland, Maine a town called Brunswick, um, another foodie town. There's quite a few good restaurants there. It's also the home of one of the you know greatest colleges around, of course, right. the Bowdoin College is up in Brunswick and all that. So let's let's talk about the concept and where you're at in the timeline of that restaurant and what's happening now.
0: Sure. So, um, like you said, we'd closed 5P5 and we were we had we were, you know, sort of. It was sad, but it was time. So it was, you know, had a little bit of peace. And then uh, we had a friend who is on our, on the board as well come to us and say, "I'm I bought a hotel and I'm renovating it, and there's a restaurant, and I don't know anything about restaurants, so you want to partner with us?" And um, we, we thought about it, and we said. Sure, this was an opportunity to reopen Five Fifty Five, and but you know it wasn't a hundred percent ours, so we didn't have to be there twenty four seven, and we'd have a partner. So um, we did that, and his uh, wife uh, designed it, and it was it's so beautiful. She did it's just amazing. You know, when we opened Five Fifty Five, we did it all on our money. We didn't even have an investor, so we painted ourselves, and we never had a designer. So to be able to do this was sort of a dream to, to have like a beautiful, beautiful space. Um, and the hotel's beautiful. So um, yeah. And so it's been, I would want to say seven months um, and it's been, it's been going great. It, uh, it's been very busy. We love Brunswick. I, I didn't know it very well, but it's a cute town and customers have been great. And they're actually, you know, more experimental than I even thought. We thought, you know, it's Northern, it's not going to be like Portland and, not true. They're into food and wine and it's been a great experience. Uh, We have some great staff that we found. It was a little tricky, but (laughs) we made it. So yeah.
1: Is Steve chef there as well?
0: So he's what we consider the executive chef. You know, he doesn't cook there. He mostly um, helps design the menu again, treating it as a teaching. We have a young chef that was actually the chef at Petit Jacqueline that we moved over. Perfect. Perfect row. Right. Yeah. Um, he's young and he's learning and, um, he's very talented and very enthusiastic. So Steve's helping, guiding him, um, with, you know, managing and managing a menu and, and how this works. Cause it's a, it's a big restaurant. So it's, it's, it takes a lot to understand what works and doesn't work. Like we spoke about before. Well, it's
1: also a beautiful thing that you can find time and the care to mentor others in this business and bring them up and give them skills that they can then, you know, take with them in the future. Hopefully they stay with you for a long time, but ultimately, you know, they'll spread their wings a little bit, but you can be so proud of what they accomplish in their careers just based on taking a personal interest. And I think that's a huge part of our business. I know I I was able to experience that for a couple of decades and just finding someone that had that that fire and that passion. And they really had a desire to to learn and grow and they loved the business and you just wanted to share everything you knew with them, whether they right. stayed with you or not. It's like, you know, yes. And, and there's something so gratifying about that. So I'm, I'm sure you feel the same thing with the people.
0: that well, Yeah. So with. funny. I always joke, but all the best ones do leave because they're <laughs> ambitious. And, right. uh, you know, unfortunately they go to do their own things. And yep. but we love that it's, it's a compliment, right. If they can go and mm-hmm. be successful. And we have so many people that are used to work for us that own their own restaurants now or are in the wine business. And yeah, we love it. You know, they're like your kids. You want them to do well. And, yeah.
1: So we didn't talk about the concept in the menu at five fifty-five. Tell us about that.
0: So it's almost identical to the original five fifty-five. Mm-hmm. Um we took or are taking the most signature dishes, the most loved and iconic dishes that Steve came up with and they're on the menu. Um, and then we're peppering them in with things that change and um seasonally, it's very seasonal and some of the new chef's ideas and some of seeds ideas and, um, you know, uh, you're limited by your sort of way we always say you're limited by your lower lowest denominator. You know, everyone has to be able to cook this food. So you can't come up with this crazy recipe that only the chef can do and recreate. So, you know, and again, teaching is part of it. So you have to have time, um, the ability to teach this the staff—it's a little greener staff up north than in Portland. So, you're definitely doing a lot of teaching, and so that's great.
1: What would you say? I believe your partner's name is Gerard. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, Gerard. Yes.
1: Is—is is he what? What's his role and responsibilities with the restaurant uh, besides the hotel? Just what's he, what's he doing so, there?
0: He's the uh, owner and uh, operational manager. Um, he is. He's so great because he knows hotels so well. He worked at the Portland Harbor. He was the general manager there for mm-hmm. years and years. Um, but he really is interested in learning about restaurants. He's very engaged. Um, he's very supportive. He uh, listens to ideas. He gives feedback. But he, he's, he stays hands-off knowing the limitations of his knowledge. But also, um, he learns a great deal. And uh, um He's just a great, great partner. It's, I've, I, we were nervous because Steve and I it's only been us for 20 years, you know we right. haven't even had as they like said an investor. we haven't had mm-hmm. anyone to answer to. So we thought, well, how's this going to work? But uh, it's been great, you know, because it's also a someone who's been in the industry for even longer than us, and we yeah. can bounce ideas yeah. off of him and and learn from him as he learns from us. so it's a, it's a great collaborative.
1: Overlapping strengths, but combined similar vision and uh, just a great working relationship. So I think that's rare, but that's wonderful that you found it.
0: I think we we rolled the dice a little bit, and uh, so
1: there's (laughs) an experiment, another win that uh, you know not a failed experiment, but a good a good one so far. Great.
0: Yeah, because I, I, you know, as we're doing it, I'm imagining, God, this could have gone really bad if it, if it wasn't like that, you know? So, <laughs> so we're lucky. Yeah. And That's he's very so patient. Good. He is more than yeah. what he's teaching me more than anything mm-hmm. is he's so patient with the staff. I can sometimes be a little type A and I really, my expectations are, are quite high. And mm-hmm. he reminds me that these People are learning and we're here to teach them now and um, it's okay for them to make mistakes and, and uh, it's our responsibility to show them the right way. So, and he's super patient, which I'm not necessarily wow. the most patient person. So it's a great reminder for me.
1: Sounds like a great collaboration. You mentioned earlier something about being not only in the front of house, but also being in the back office. Are you doing all the finances for these restaurants too?
0: Um, so for years I did absolutely everything. Um, but I it, it really sort of took its toll. Oh,
1: yeah. oh <laughs> um, I know you're wearing all the yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Right. All the, all the bill. Pay- I mean, I still do all the bill paying. Um, we do have a bookkeeper that helps me a, l- a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and like I said, we are slowly trying to, um, Step back a little bit. So I do have my, and I think that's what you were saying. Part of the mentoring and teaching process is stepping back so that you can let your managers learn and do the tasks that you used to do, so that they can learn to do it for their next job as well, for you know their adult life. So I am letting um, my general manager do a little more of the payroll stuff and the bill stuff, and so I and you know then you switch to overseeing and double checking, right, versus the actual doing, but I'm still doing a lot, (laughs) but less and less. each. Gradual.
1: You're you're taking things off your plate. No pun intended. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Trying. Yes. Trying.
1: Well, good. You know, there's a great lesson to our audience there and I'm, I'm shifting and I have shifted quite a while in the last couple of years of the terminology that I use because the word manager is just so commonly used and the word delegate is so commonly used. But that doesn't mean that just because someone has been promoted a manager or they have the title of manager, that they're actually competent or experienced or really very well versed in what they do. And that's the difference between a manager and a leader because the leader leads by example, they've got the experience, they've got the patience. And instead of delegating, telling somebody what to do, they really empower those people and they recognize talent and they give these people additional responsibilities. They give them room to fail. They don't criticize, they, you know, they critique performance, they encourage, they nurture, they develop, and then they recognize and they reward that performance. And that's really empowerment because your people feel like. I don't wanna let these people down. It's like, I have talents. They encourage my ideas. They give me additional responsibility and I'm thriving here. And so many people, you know, that's sort of a key because most people have employees and some people have empowered staff. And, and team members. And, you know, I just I, think that's a huge difference today. And it sounds like that's the way that, you know, you're mentoring people and you're really bringing them up in your organization. And that is allowing you to take steps back right. when you feel comfortable. And you can't be afraid to do that. You know, that's kind of your exit strategy. If you've got that right. dream team in place, and if you can really get everybody so that they feel like they own the place and they run it like they own it, then they've got your back when you're not there. And that is a very powerful system in a restaurant. So.
0: Yeah. And I love, I love how you said that. It, it, I think there is a negative connotation about delegation as you're just dumping work onto somebody. Right, so you don't exactly. have to do it. And that's, and that's why I'm trying to, how I teach my managers. I want them to delegate as well, but I love, like that. It's not delegating it's in, empowering them because they mm-hmm. want to learn and they want to do the work and, uh, and they can't learn if they're not doing it. So yeah, I, that's a great point. Yeah. And I, I do, I have a, people at PJ that sort of, I look at them and I'm like, you, you act like you own the place you're taking on so much. And, you know, it's amazing how um, certain people will take that on. And, and it's not just, they're not doing it for me. They're doing it for their staff and their, and the customers that they love, which is a great feeling too. You know, you'd like to motivate them, but to not just be the reason that they're motivated.
1: Absolutely true. You've given us so much information and so much valuable insights and nuggets about running great restaurants. I have a last question for you. What would you say? Well, we did talk about The pandemic being a huge challenge, but then you put another spin on it saying these are the most challenging times right now. And with that in mind, you've been able to dig deep and be really creative and really resourceful and keep your head on straight and just keep moving forward. What would be your best advice to other operators that have survived the pandemic? They're struggling with the same challenges you are. And sometimes we feel like our bandwidth is shot and we're at our wits end, but it's like, What would you say to people to just keep going, to continue to not just survive in this business, but really find success and fulfillment and and be really gratified in what they're doing? What's what's your advice to them? How do you do it?
0: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, I'd say, you know, surround yourself with positive people, surround yourself, really talk to your your peers and your colleagues. I know we're so lucky in Portland and in Maine in general, and, and you know, from being on the board at hospitality main there's just so many great people and resources um that are fighters that have great experience that have been doing it longer than you and are positive always positive and i think in portland i find all of our other restaurant owners are we more like friends and supportive I, you know when new restaurants come we're excited because we think it brings people to maine and, and elevates all of portland uh, it was very non-competitive it's you know i I talk almost every day to several uh, restaurant owners in town and we just, we help each other. Oh, I've got this great idea. This has really worked for me. Uh, You know, my chef is ready to move on and he's a great chef. He's just ready to move on. Do you need somebody, you know, it's just so important to surround yourself. And with those people, I think it's important to remember that is just food <laughs> and things can be fixed and um, you get one bad review and you just learn, learn, learn from everything, learn from everything. You know, I learned from the pandemic and I'm, I think a more relaxed person because of it, more relaxed manager a more relaxed leader because we learn from that. And, um, and that the quality of life, the quality of life is really important. I, I spent 10 or 15 years really dug in deep and, I'm, I don't regret that per se, but um, I would say look around a little bit and look at the quality of life and the quality of life of your staff, which um, I don't think was as important to us back then. But as a leader now, giving your staff a quality of life and making sure they understand that is part of our our job description. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you're happy in your life, it shows in your restaurant, Um and uh just you know try something new every you know every year my husband and i uh thought of a, a something big that we would do to the restaurant whether we change all the tables or we started tasting menu or we uh we redid the office into a private dining room you know i think every year you need to think of one big change and invest and it's an investment you'll have to put some money in but um it's worth it it makes invigorates your staff it invigorates you and usually it, it creates more, um, more opportunity and more money and more customers. Yeah.
1: That's very solid advice, Michelle. Thanks so much for sharing. Thank you for sharing your experiences and your insights and your wisdom of all things, restaurants, as well as talking about, uh, your two properties. So you've been a great guest on the podcast and we thank you for being here.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Roger. It was really, uh, touched and honored that you even asked. So I appreciate it.
1: I'll see you at the next board meeting.
0: (laughs) I will. Great. Uh, Have a great day and a great week
1: you as well that was the restaurant Rockstars podcast thank you so much audience for tuning in can't wait to see you next time stay well everyone thank you michelle for being a great guest on the podcast you know i've always been inspired by the restaurants you're running and your approach to this business and it's also been a pleasure working and serving with you on the board of hospitality maine this is a proud industry based on passion you certainly shared that today with all the insights and knowledge and experience that you shared with our audience so thank you so much for that thanks also to the sponsors of this week's episode, as well as our audience for continuing to tune in. We can't wait to see you next time. So stay tuned. People go to restaurants for lots of reasons, for fun, celebration, for family, for lifestyle. What the customer doesn't know is the thousands of details it takes to run a great restaurant. This is a high risk, high fail business. It's hard to find great staff. Costs are rising and profits are disappearing. It's a treacherous road and smart operators need a professional guide. I'm Roger. I've started many highly successful high-profit restaurants that I've now sold for millions of dollars. I'm passionate about helping other owners and managers not just succeed, but knock it out of the park. I created a game-changing system and it's filled with everything I've learned in over 20 years running super profitable, super fun restaurants. Everything from creating high-profit menu items and cost controls to staff training where your teams serve and sell, to marketing hooks, money maximizing tips, and efficiencies across your operation. What does this mean to you? More money to invest in your restaurant, to hire a management team, time, freedom, and peace of mind. You don't just want to run a restaurant, you want to dominate your competition and create a lasting legacy. Join the Academy and I'll show you how it's done.